back to the Fourth Way Podcast. I'm writing this episode on April 21st, 2021. It is the day after Derek Chauvin was found guilty for the murder of George Floyd. While I'm seeing some of my Facebook friends upset at the verdict, by and large, even most of my conservative friends are happy, though a lot of them do have to tack on that they still don't condone the looters for some reason. They don't want to appear too liberal, which I guess being opposed to the murder of a black man might bring their conservative stance and maybe even their Christianity into question by some. So they have to qualify and temper their delight that justice was served. But hey, baby steps. Anyway, I think writing this episode in light of the verdict is perfect timing because today we're going to be discussing the issue of legislation. I've talked a bunch about legislation throughout the seasons, whether it was in regard to abortion, CRT, or whatnot. There were usually two overall points I tried to make, and this episode won't be that much different. First, the ends don't justify the means, so compromising moral positions to exact legislation is inexcusable. Two wrongs don't make a right, ends don't justify the means. And second, All legislation is backed by the sword and does not change hearts. Everything else I say is ultimately a fleshing out of one of those two premises, and usually, for this podcast, we focus mostly on the second premise, dealing with with the sword and violence. If legislation is powered by violence and doesn't change the heart, what concern does the Christian have with it? Why would we wield it? So I'm not sure that today's episode will be new for any of you who've been listening for any length of time, but I do hope that it's an episode which pieces everything together and can maybe house the issue of legislation coherently. So let's dive in. It's often difficult to have a discussion about legislation because nobody can imagine life without it. Maybe that's why nobody can imagine life without government, because the thing that government does that is really the power that we're seeking to control is to legislate things, right? And we are a people of laws. Just go do a Google search right now and look at how many federal laws there are in existence. They're so numerous and haphazard that nobody even knows. They're they're not counted. And that's just the federal laws. We love the law and we love the structure that we think that those laws give us. However, we argued in a previous episode that in general, laws don't change behavior but rather, behavior changes laws. Of course, I'm not saying that laws don't change any behavior ever, or that a police officer enforcing a new speed limit won't reduce the number of speeders. But when it comes to human action, it is public sentiment which drives action, not legislation. Legislation, then, follows public sentiment. It does not precede it, usually. Whether it's overturning prohibition or civil rights laws, Public sentiment precedes legislation and action. In the past year leading up to writing this episode, I have seen more police reform proposed and actualized than I recall ever seeing in my lifetime. And yesterday, a jury voted to convict a police officer in a situation where many, many, many other police officers have gotten off scot-free. Why? The legislation and the verdict are being propelled forward by public sentiment and outcry whether it was the civil rights movement whose kickoff may be seen in the blinding of Isaac Woodard, or the 1968 civil rights bill in the wake of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, public sentiment and self-interest drive government decisions in regard to legislation. 
So rather than seeing legislation as something which, by and large, keeps the peace, I think of it more as something which reflects the peace we have already agreed to. Again, for more specific examples and discussions, I'll link previous episodes in the show notes. And I think we have some future ones coming up too, which we'll touch on this a little bit. Now, if legislation ends up being largely a reflection of public sentiment and values rather than the establishing of those things, then legislation is largely superfluous in curbing significantly bad behavior, right? It's more of a way to justify the punishment of those who are not adhering to societal expectations. Legislation, then, doesn't seek the construction of the moral, but rather the destruction of the immoral. It recognizes societal morality and norms and provides a means whereby vengeance can be exacted on the transgressor of those values and norms. Legislation is therefore vengeance because the sword is behind all legislation. Certainly laws can be deterrents, and we'd rather have people adhere to our values and norms than to be punished, right? Nevertheless, legislation is primarily about vengeance, as even a low-level speeding ticket is backed by the sword. I told my story before about how I had the sword pointed at me for my traffic violation. Uh, I guess I, I went around another car and I wasn't supposed to because he was turning left, whatever. And uh, this police officer stopped me and ended up not putting the ticket in, even though I looked for days and days and days online, weeks online, and eventually just said, okay, well, I guess he forgot about it. And then one day I get a warrant for my arrest saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to take you by force next time we see you, next time we, we stop you. Now that's crazy when you think about it, right? I could get killed essentially as a result of going a few miles over the speed limit or not turning on a turn signal or going around a car who's turning. But maybe you can imagine that traffic should be regulated well and the responsibility of driving irresponsibly could rightfully lead to my death. I'll do you one better then. I'm in a group which meets to discuss apologetics at this local bar, tavern, speakeasy thing. Well, the town recently rolled out legislation in an attempt to make people want to come to the town more and more and to visit local businesses. So they ended up issuing this ordinance which allows alcohol to be carried around on the streets with one minor condition. It has to be in plastic cups marked by a local place of business there. Now, the owner of the establishment was talking about buying a few thousand of these plastic cups with his logo on it, and I asked him a question. I said, so I can just buy a drink at your place and get the cup, then go tailgate with the beer I bought and pour it into your cup? He said, yeah, if you want to get arrested. Now, think about that. Sure, I shouldn't break the law. Submit to government. Great, I agree. However, in order to get a few people to walk the streets of this little town, they will allow some people the freedom to walk on public space with alcohol, while others could literally be arrested, and if they don't comply, be shot and killed because they don't have a plastic cup with an appropriate stamp on it or because they filled a stamped cup with their own beverage. Now, for the purpose of social engineering and economic advantage, the government tells us that they'll pull a gun on us and put it to our heads if we don't self-restrict our own freedoms and comply. And something like this being carried out to someone's execution isn't far-fetched, because I know that's probably what you're thinking. Ask the black community about Eric Garner, a guy who was selling cigarettes when the police went to arrest him and ended up killing him. Look, 
Whether you want to follow legislation to its ultimate logical end or not, you must know that all legislation is vengeance. As Christians who are called to leave vengeance up to God in Romans 12, it is difficult for me to see then how we can take a sword into our hand, whether that be directly or indirectly through the ballot box. God works his vengeance out through his tool, the government, just as he did with Assyria in Isaiah 10. But we also see how God judges his tools who are violating his will, and we know that God's will is for us to leave vengeance up to him. So, legislation doesn't create morality. It reflects social values and norms. And legislation is vengeance, because it's backed by the sword. The final thing I'd say about legislation here is that it is contrary to the gospel. We don't fight against flesh and blood, yet that's what legislation does. It puts the sword to the throat of evildoers. Yet when you see Martin Luther King Jr. or Frederick Douglass recognizing how the evil men that they're fighting are actually themselves enslaved to evil, and the black oppressed want to free their white oppressors, who they recognize as being oppressed themselves, that's powerful. That's gospel. We are called to be the body of Christ, and through our offering of ourselves as living sacrifices, we need to be broken and poured out for the world. We were promised persecution and cross, yet we, through legislation, so often seek to harm others and exact our vengeance now. But God has revealed that the law, while good in exposing our sin, is not what he calls us to be bound to. Why then would we seek to bind others to it? He wants us to live free in Christ and to demonstrate that to the world through our lives. It doesn't matter what our government's laws are, our example to the world isn't in changing their legislation, but in living those lives as if God were king and Caesar were not. Our nation's laws be damned. Whether I'm slave or free, black or white, man or woman, whatever I am and whatever position I'm in, I live in the kingdom of God and that freedom is light to the world. It's the gospel that changes hearts, not legislation. And guess which one of those God called the church to pursue? The gospel is foolishness to those who don't know God. And you know what? It's foolishness to a lot of Christians, so it seems. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Unless you have the power to legislate. Then use sticks and stones. Oh, sorry. I, uh, I had just dropped the mic because I thought that I was done. Because uh, that's what I had recorded. But... Then I read Thomas Sowell's book, Civil Rights, Rhetoric, or Reality, and I just had to add a little bit more to this. Since most of the episode up to this point was, was ideological in nature, I think Sowell can help to flesh out a little bit more of the practical aspect of legislation here. Now, if you know who Thomas Sowell is, and if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you'll know that he and I would not see eye to eye on quite a number of things. However... I have listened to a bunch of his interviews and talks that he's given, and I have read several of his books, and quite honestly, I do find him to be rather thoughtful. He does make a number of assumptions that I disagree with when he uses his data, and he often comes to a divergent conclusion than I do, but of all the ultra-conservative voices out there, I think Sol is a, is a pretty critical thinker, and I think he offers an important alternative perspective. Listening to him is a good balancing act if you're primarily fed from the left or, uh, of the political spectrum. Anyway, in Sowell's book, 
on civil rights, there are two particular historical events that he mentions which I want to highlight in this episode. Before those examples, however, let me explain what the point of Sowell's book is. Sowell is basically arguing that the data showing improvement from civil rights legislation isn't what it seems because many of the positives we saw post-legislation were actually already trending that way prior to legislation. And second, he says that legislation often ends up having an unintended consequence, um, which a lot of times is bad. So let's provide an example of each of these things here from his book. First, let's look at unintended consequences of legislation. The best example Sowell gives is that of the start of World War II. Most people I know believe that World War II was started because Hitler was just some antagonistic Dr. Evil and we were going to save the Jews uh, and stop him from taking over the world. Now, maybe that was the case, um, but we didn't really know about the Jews, not a lot of people, and um, Hitler wasn't all that antagonistic at first. It's not like he just started taking over the world because he needed a catalyst to rally the people and to aggress. Now, what was that catalyst? Well, a big one was Czechoslovakia. They had a large German population, and this population was supposedly being repressed by the Czechs in their nationalistic movement. Now, you'll find different stories here with some saying that the German repression was really political theater. The Germans in Czechoslovakia weren't really being oppressed. Nevertheless, this repression, or perceived repression, helped to launch Hitler uh, into invading and into aggression in, in the surrounding countries because he wanted to come and save his family in Czechoslovakia. Now note that this event preceded Hitler's invasion of Poland by right around six months, though the invasion of Poland in 1939 is often viewed as the focus of the start of World War II. So a supposed Czech nationalist movement and subsequent legislation which repressed Germans pushed Hitler to aggress and Germans to become nationalists themselves, or at least accept that route more easily. Whether you think this was political theater on the part of Hitler or not, is beside the point. The point is that Germans thought they were being oppressed through legislation and action by a nationalistic government, and that catalyzed a negative response. I don't think that type of thing is too far off from what has been spiraling in the United States for some time. There's legislation against abortion and gay marriage, so the other side brings out bigger guns. Now, there are looser abortion laws. Marriage is redefined, and gender identity is under assault. And we have our first black president. Oh no. Then we elect a president who's tough on immigrants in response to that. He's America first in mindset. And he's supported by a ton of white nationalists. Which has no correspondence to the fact that we just had a black president. I think what we see is that legislation and oppression, or perceived oppression, catalyzes vitriol and violence. It polarizes. It drives us towards two different poles, not towards inclusion and unity. So legislation ends up hurting relationships, and that is a huge issue. But Sowell also points out that legislation can take the credit for societal changes already underway. Sowell does a good job pointing out a number of instances in which there was an upward trend in inclusion and rights prior to affirmative action and other civil rights legislation. You'll have to read his book to hear specific examples, but it's definitely worth a listen, or a read, 
and it would also be worthwhile to check him on his stats. But according to Sol, while affirmative action may have caused some increased gains in diversity and equality by the numbers, our society was already headed that way if you look at the data. While Sol might say that affirmative action sped that up, I think he'd argue that artificial tinkering with the system for results ends up producing worse results in the long run. Just look at the negative impact of affirmative action in regard to white perception. How many minorities hear, oh, you just got into college because of affirmative action? How many times have I heard white men complaining that they're the most discriminated against group because they're the last ones anyone would ever pick for a job due to affirmative action? Again, just like our German Czech example, it doesn't matter what reality is. What matters is the perception people have because that's the reality that they're working off of and drawing their sentiments and actions from. Legislation gives racists an excuse to be more racist and perpetuate their racism. If it took 20 extra years to accomplish the diversity that affirmative action sped up, would we have ended up with less racial tensions and issues today? I have no idea, and I don't think anyone can really answer that question. But what we can notice is that the civil rights legislation was an outworking of patterns that were already showing in the broader society. Legislation isn't a hero, nor is it a workhorse. It's a servant of politicians who take the credit for public sentiment that already exists in order to maintain a power that they can lord over others as saviors. Legislation is the plagiarization of the people's sentiment by politicians. What does this all mean? Well, for the Christian, it means that we don't take vengeance into our hands, whether that's by sword real or sword implied through legislation. As Tolstoy said, government is built on the diffusion of responsibility. What's the difference if I, a Christian, am an executioner who takes a life, or if I, a Christian, write the law which necessitates and validates the executioner? You also get a really good glimpse of that in uh, one of the sections of Aidan Balu's book. And Tolstoy and Balu would essentially argue that it's the same thing whether I execute or I employ the executioner. But through voting and legislation, we diffuse our responsibility away from us. It, uh, it reminds me of that old-time uh, job, and I think there's a, a book and a movie out about it too, um, from Francine Rivers, I think, but it's called Sin Eaters. And the Sin Eaters were these, what I think are, are really weird people, who they would be hired to eat with or like actually their meal on top of the corpses of the newly deceased in order to take their sins upon themselves, uh, the sins of the deceased upon the, the uh, sin eaters themselves. They, like other weird jobs in old times, like executioners, uh, they were ostracized by society because they fulfilled a dirty role that nobody else wanted to be associated with. And I can look back at that, and I know that we all look back at things like that, and we think, man, those, those ancient societies, those older societies are so barbaric. Who would ever want a society where we had sin eaters? Apparently we do, because the vast majority of us diffuse responsibility for the barbarity of our wars and justice system to roles we would never fulfill ourselves, to do tasks we could never justify morally were they to be done by our own hands. No matter how you look at it, legislation is sword, not savior. And our Savior, in disarming Peter, has disarmed every soldier. Yes, our Savior fights, 
but he fights as a slain lamb with a sword coming out of his mouth. We, his people, are to conquer in like fashion through our testimony of Jesus Christ. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.